welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The grace of God brings about not just the perseverance of the saints, but also the perseverance of the church. Without this, the church would have died quickly and quietly soon after the crucifixion. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, The Book of Acts, Growth Against All Odds, with this sermon entitled, Attacks on the Church, Forces from Without, which covers Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray now, and then we'll jump into where God has us in the book of Acts. Father, thank you for the great joy it is to gather as your people each week. Uh, Lord, we do pray for the Bairds. We pray that you would comfort them as they grieve, and the same for the Popes. And Father, this morning, would you, would you comfort us in this place with your Holy Spirit, and would you give us the ability to hear your word, to receive it with joy, and to be changed by it. And would you do it for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. So before, before I started working here on staff at the church almost five years ago, uh, for 13 years, Rachel and I were involved with, with college ministry. We served on some different campuses, the two most prominent being uh, the University of Georgia for four years and the University of Alabama for seven years before we came here and in 2015. And in those, in those years of being, uh, working with college students and being on a college campus, my primary work in terms of my personal ministry is I would give leadership to various areas of our team. But where I would go and just be involved in ministry personally was almost always in the fraternity houses. And this was a, a passion of mine. I had been in a fraternity in college and I, I just had a real heart for these guys knowing the culture that they're experiencing and the lies that are being thrown at them. And, and so, um, especially in the fall semesters of each year, what dominated my time is I would go in the evenings a lot of times uh, to these various fraternity houses, and it was my goal every fall semester that we would be able to do this in every house on campus, and I would speak to the freshmen. And sometimes I'd get to speak to the whole chapter, but uh, most of the time it would be to the freshman class. And I'd be able to come in there and I'd say, uh, I had this little spill that I would give them 10 to 12 minutes where I'd say, we all have four critical needs that we must address in our life. We have physical needs, we have intellectual and emotional needs, we have social needs. And then this one you may or may not agree with as much, but it's there and it's actually the most critical and it's, we have spiritual Needs And in, in light of that, uh, let me also tell you three lies that we all believe. And so I'd walk through three lies. I'd say, uh, first and foremost, we believe in the spiritual front, we believe that we have all the time in the world to do the God thing. And if anything, uh, with Kobe Bryant and all the deaths that we have experienced, even in our own congregation recently, it has been a reminder that life is but a breath. And so maybe that's not true, that we have all the time in the world to do the whole God thing. Uh, the second lie that I would present to them is that what I do now, the decisions that I make now, the things that I do now won't affect me later in life. Uh, that we believe this lie that what I do in college stays in college kind of like Vegas. And it's, that would be convenient, but it's just not true. And then the third lie, as simple as it sounds, yet so very profound, is that what's, we believe the lie that what's external is more important than what's internal. And we begin to center our lives all around the external, thinking that's getting us what we ultimately want. And then I would tell these, these freshman 
young men, I would tell them, I'd say, uh, listen, those aren't lies that freshmen in college believe. Those are lies that 40 and 50 and 60 and 70-year-old men and women continue to believe. And then I would just say, so let me leave you with this. And I'd, I'd quickly share my story and then I'd just point to Jesus. I'd give them what I'd call gospel nuggets, just to, enough for them to chew on and whet their appetite to say, I, I kinda wanna hear more about that. Then I'd pass around a card and let them fill it out and I'd say, look, do not pass a card in if you think I'm full of it. But if you would be interested in meeting with me over coffee or lunch and hearing more about this, then just fill it out, pass it on up to me, and give it to me on your way out. And I was always on the good side of things. I was always blown away at how many guys would fill that card out and give it to me. And I was always blown away at how many guys would end up coming to faith. Let me tell you the other side of it. The hundreds of times that I did that over the years, I can't remember one time that I ever walked up to a fraternity house excited. I was always terrified. Many times I can remember I'd get to the door of the fraternity house and I'd pause. And before I'd open that door, I'd just say a quick prayer, oh God, would you give me strength? Because I just, I never enjoyed it from a personal standpoint because I was always so fearful. And I don't know, I wish I could explain to you, it's just human nature, right? Why would I care what 18 to 21 year old fraternity guys think about me? <laughs> but I would. And there were many times, many times over the years where sure enough, there'd be one or two or maybe even a group of them feeding off each other that would just be back in the corner or wherever they were, snickering and laughing thinking I was an idiot. One guy one time even uh, yelled out in a very, shall we say, colorful way his disagreement with me and telling me that I was full of it. And those things would just make me go, oh, I just don't want to do this. But I kept doing it, not because I'm some great Christian, and it wasn't because of some fearless obedience. It was actually fearful obedience. But I kept doing it because I was convinced that God was ready to work in the hearts of some of those guys through the message that they would hear through me. I so said, you just keep doing it, you keep trusting, you obey in the face of fear. And that's what the Christian life is about in so many ways. It's about obedience to King Jesus, even when we don't want to. If we sit around waiting for want to, to fuel our obedience, to him in the way that he deserves, we wouldn't obey a whole lot. What we're gonna see in the text today is we're gonna see um, these apostles of the early church fixated on Jesus and fixated on obedience to him even in the face of opposition and persecution. Now, what I experienced in those fraternity houses, I don't, I don't think you could call it persecution, maybe at the most minimal level. It was, it was ridicule, it was snickering, you know. And at the end of the day, uh, it, what is that? You know, we can, we can handle that. But you better believe that there are people all over this world in various places throughout the world right now today who are waking up every day fearing for their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And that is not an overstatement. It is not exaggeration or overstated to say that it, there has never been a time in the history of the world where uh, there have never been more people being killed for their faith in Jesus than they are right now throughout this world. Persecution is real. Persecution is expected. 
God said it would come. And here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that as we continue in our society to continue to move towards a a post-Christian society, we tend to always follow in suit with Europe, but just way behind them. And Europe is very post-Christian right now, and we will be there probably sooner than later. And so persecution might start looking different for the believer in America in the years to come. Are we ready for it? Are we equipped for it? So I want to go to the text and learn what does it look like for God's people to obey in the face of persecution. Before we read the text, I want to give you, I want to give you some definitions of three key groups that you're going to see as I read through the text and give some commentary along the way. There's going to be three groups that you're going to see, and I want to make sure we understand who they are. Okay, even those who've been in church for a while probably don't know exactly how these groups are defined, although they come, off, they come up often in Scripture. So the first one is the Sanhedrin. Okay, you're going to see it in your Bibles most likely as the council. But that's what was called the Sanhedrin. Here's what the Sanhedrin was. It was a 71-member Supreme Court of Israel in that day. It was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, which are the other two groups I'm going to tell you about in just a moment. The high priest uh, was the chief officer, the chief ruler of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Many times, if you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels in the New Testament, many times it's referred to as the Council of the Elders. That's what this is. Um, And it was abolished after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And uh, so just know that when we talk about the council, that's the Supreme Court, the ones who are ruling over Israel in that day and time, okay? Uh, The second group that you're going to see right off the bat as we begin reading is Sadducees. Here's who the Sadducees were. They were a Jewish group, a sect, opposed to the Pharisees, which is another Jewish sect. But they were opposed to the Pharisees, but joined with the Pharisees in persecuting Jesus and his people. So they disagreed with one another, but they agreed on, hey, let's hate Jesus together, okay? Uh, They were the wealthy, for the most part. They uh, often held the the more powerful positions. Uh, Most of of the Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees rather than Pharisees. And they also, uh, this group ceased to exist after uh, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Here are the key beliefs of the Sadducees. Um, They denied the resurrection of the dead. They denied the existence of spirits and angels. And they denied the afterlife, that there was an afterlife. You just cease to exist after you die. Uh, One other key marker for them is that they believed only in the written law of God. Nothing can be transmitted orally. There was nothing that, uh, that... Uh, As the Pharisees, you will see, believe in the oral tradition handed down. Uh, They did not believe in that. So with the Pharisees, same thing. They opposed the Sadducees but joined in the persecution of Jesus. Uh, These folks, the Pharisees, they were more representative of the common people, the working people. And they had the respect of the masses. Um, And they laid the foundational work for what became modern-day rabbinic Judaism. So modern rabbinic Judaism has its roots and the Pharisees. Uh, They believed basically the opposite of the Sadducees. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in the existence of angels and spirits, and they believed in the afterlife where people would be rewarded or punished. Um, And then they did believe in the written law and also, and this is where Jesus really hammered them, 
where he came after the Pharisees hard is they were, they were incredibly self-righteous and it was usually centered around the laws that they had added to the written law through oral tradition. And so I want you to just get an overarching concept of who these groups are because we're gonna read now the text and they're gonna come up pretty quickly within the text. Now, before I read, one last thing to say. If you remember last week, and if you haven't been with us, I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous week podcast. There's so much that, to be caught up on that I don't have time to recap now. But one of the things I mentioned last week was this, that when the church is thriving, the enemy, that's when he's most uh, likely to attack. And we talked last week how he, uh, he rose, he, he began to stir in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira who were within the church. And so he arose within the church to try to bring division and dissension and destruction. And what we're looking at this week is how he's going to stir the authorities without the church, the forces from without to bring his attacks. And it's also gonna again be on the heels of when the church is thriving. Last week it was the community of believers is just living this life, this community that is unique and different and uh, transformational. And then he comes in with his deception. This week in a text that I'm not reading, but right before where we're gonna pick up, Luke says this. Luke says in verse 14 of chapter five, he says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The church is exploding in number and miracles are happening more than you can count. The church is thriving. So the enemy's at work. So here's how the enemy comes from attacks from without in our text today. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Let me just speak quickly to that phrase, filled with jealousy. It it, it hearkens us back, if we're familiar with the scriptures, all the way back to Genesis 37, where Joseph, who was clearly had anointed by God, clearly had the hand of God upon him, his brothers were so jealous of him and what God was speaking to him that they, they hated him. And they schemed to kill him out of jealousy in their hearts. And so something very similar is at play here. And yet the Sadducees, these people who know that story well, are guilty of the very same thing. They're unwilling to see the hand of God upon these apostles and upon his church. And instead they're filled with jealousy, scheming to kill Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. I'm not going to comment, I promise, on every single verse, but I just think it's funny. I think it's funny that it was an angel of the Lord. You remember, the Sadducees don't believe that angels exist. And so God uses an angel to deliver them in a miraculous way. And you'll see as the text develops even how that began to look. How was it that they were able to get out with no one noticing? And the angel said to them, verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people 
all the words of this life. Maybe life in your Bible is capitalized like it is mine, the L is capitalized, because here's what that's getting at in the original language. What he's not saying is this. The angel of the Lord is not saying, hey, go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna release you from prison so that you can go and tell about this unique community that you have and talk about how we're giving, we're selling our houses and our land and we're giving all to, to the poor so that no one has need and we're doing all these really cool things. No, 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 not talk about your way of life, Talk about the one who is life. Talk about Jesus. Keep teaching about Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the one that I want you talking about, and I'm freeing you so that you can talk about him, not you. Is that not the story of every believer? We have been set free from prison, the slavery of sin, the prison of sin. Why? So that we can proclaim to the world and demonstrate to the world the greatness of the one who is life. And we have been found in him. And this is what the angel of the Lord is saying. Take this life, this Jesus, and don't stop. Keep proclaiming. Keep teaching. And so they do that, verse 21. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. That's a phrase that means at complete loss, befuddled. Again, it's at this juncture that you would hope that they would possibly go, you know what? Guards didn't see them leave. No one can explain how they got out. Doors are still locked. Windows are still barred. Guys, this could be a work of God, but their hardness of heart, not letting them go there. And so they don't recognize it and they keep pressing on in their opposition. Verse 25, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. So they have the apostles now after being embarrassed that the apostles got out from under their, their watch. They're, they're totally and completely offended by the, by the apostles that we told you when we brought Now, they didn't think in chapters, but we're thinking in chapters as we read the book of Acts. Two chapters ago when we brought Peter and John in and we we put them before the council and we tried to intimidate them and tell them, do not speak any longer in this name of Jesus. And yet here they are again. They're doing it again. So let's get all the apostles now, not just Peter and John, and let's bring them in again and let's ratchet it up a little bit. We We can't tolerate this any longer because we are the people We are the people that the masses should be following, not them. We are the people of God, not them. And ego and pride and hardness of heart were in the way of them seeing the work of God. Verse 27 leads us into when they're brought in. 
And let me just tell you, Jesus had told them that these kind of things would happen. If, if you go back to Matthew 10, 16 through 20, let me read it real quickly. Jesus had said this. He said, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, foreshadowing, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now listen, listen, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus said this is gonna happen So let's see the words that he gave them as they were prepared for this. Verse 27, and when they had brought them in, they set them before the council of the Sanhedrin and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. He won't even say the name of Jesus. Yet here you are, having filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. First of all, uh, I think my first question would have been, how did you get out? Explain that to me. But he doesn't even go there because he's so offended that they disobeyed the Sanhedrin. And he said, we told you, in essence, we told you to obey us and you didn't obey us. And now you want to bring this man's blood upon us. And it's at this point, Peter keeps his mouth shut because he's the spokesperson, if you will, of the apostles. And he was led by the Spirit, so the Spirit didn't want to say this. I would be very prone at this point to say, hold up, what now? Do, do, do you remember just, just a few months back when Jesus was being crucified and Pilate washed his hands in front of you and said, this man is innocent, his blood is not on my hands, and you said, it says in the scripture, all the people said, which you were there, um, his blood be on us and on our children. You wanted this. You hated him so much. And you're now saying that we're trying to put this on you unfairly? Oh, how quickly. The human heart is deceived into believing that we truly haven't sinned. And so what did he say? What did Peter say in response to that? Verse 29, but Peter said, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. I wish I had more time to tease this out, but just know uh, that one phrase would have shocked them because he's using Old Testament language that they would have known intimately. The God of your fathers, he's, he's drawn them back to Genesis 3.15 when God was speaking to Moses in the burning bush and Moses says, who should I tell him sent me? And he says, tell them the God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's using scripture. And then he says, but you killed him by hanging him on a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21, 23, that every man who's hanged on a tree is cursed. So he's saying, look, you know the scriptures. You know Deuteronomy. You know Exodus. You're the fulfillment of those things. Open your eyes and see this is the Christ, the one who is to be cursed for us by hanging on a tree, yet you're not seeing it. And it's that God, the God of our fathers, the same God that you say you worship, it's that God who raised him from the dead. 
Repent and believe is the underlying message that Peter is saying here. God exalted him at his right hand, verse 31, as leader and savior. Leader is a, another word there is prince, the son of God and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Listen, don't miss this. Forgiveness of sins, repentance before a holy God is not something we earn. It's not something that we can ever achieve through our morality or through our goodness. It is a gift of God given to sinners who can never save themselves. It's a gift to those who see, unlike, unlike the, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees here, who see that they are sinners and just cry out the name Jesus. You are the savior of sinners. Would you save me? It's a gift of God. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has, again, given to those who obey him. Are you catching the implication that Peter is throwing out here? He starts with weakness. We must obey God, not man. He ends with obedience as well. And he says there at the end, he says, we are witnesses to those things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Here's what he's saying. Sanhedrin, you're, you're mad at us and you're wanting to put us on trial because we're not obeying you. In reality, you're the ones who don't have the Spirit because you're not obeying him. And if you had the Spirit, if you believed upon Jesus and received the Holy Spirit, you would know that we're actually being obedient to God and you're not. They didn't like that. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. If you go back to Acts 2, this, the truth of God and Jesus of who he is is presented to the people and they respond with repentance. Here we are in Acts 5, and the truth of who God is is revealed to them again, and they don't respond. These, these individuals don't respond with repentance. They re respond with rage. And they're ready to kill them, but a Pharisee, verse 34, named Gamaliel stands up. Gamaliel is a significant figure in the sense that he was a, a great teacher, a great rabbi in that day. And he actually discipled Paul. Saul of Tarsus at the time, who was a Pharisee, but then converted to Christ, as you'll read later in the book of Acts. And he was a disciple of Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a Pharisee, a minority there in the Sanhedrin. And he had the respect of all. You can read about it on your own. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead. But he stands up. The short of it is he stands up. And he convinces the Sanhedrin to hold off on killing these guys. He says, take them out of the room. Let me talk to you for a moment. They take the apostles out. He he convinces them to, to relent. And so if you skip back down to verse 40, when the disciples, when they called the, the, I'm sorry, the apostles, when they called the apostles back in, it says they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. The first time that they had brought Peter and John in just a little bit earlier, a few days earlier, um, they warned them and they threatened them they said, don't speak any longer in the name of Jesus, and they let him go. This time, it's increased. They warn them, they threaten them, and then they actually beat them. And that word for beat them is the word flogged. Remember Jesus said that would happen? You're going to be brought in before the courts, and you will be flogged. 
in their synagogues, and so they're flogged, and it most likely was the same flogging that Jesus got, which was the 40 lashes minus one. 39 lashes with a whip embedded with pieces of bone so that it rips the skin and the flesh out as they whip you. Would have been excruciatingly painful, to say the least. Which makes verse 41 all the more amazing. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Blood is pouring out of their backs and they are rejoicing. Are these people crazy? They're either crazy or they are so full of something that is not what this world knows of that they have actually experienced and encountered and embraced and been filled with the Spirit of God and have met life, have found life and the only one who is life, Jesus himself, to the point to where they say, I am willing to endure whatever comes at me in the way of persecution or opposition, whatever I experience circumstantially, I'm willing to take it on because Jesus is better. His kingdom is worth it, and all of this is temporal, and my life is no longer fixed on the external. It's fixed on the eternal. And there will be a day when lacerated backs will not bleed anymore because Jesus is making all things new. And so pain in the present is worth the reward in the eternal. And so we persevere, and we go, and we continue because Jesus is worth it and people hear that and they go are you brainwashed and you go no it's real and then it says verse 42 and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ they just kept going filled with the Holy Spirit proclaiming this life in Jesus Three application questions I want to give you from this text for us to consider. The first one is this. Am I expecting opposition and persecution? As a follower of Jesus, am I expecting it? Do I I live and walk with Jesus in such a way that it's just an expectation that Persecution will come. The scriptures are abundantly clear time and time again. This is the life of a a believer, a follower of Christ. It couldn't be any clearer than 1 Timothy 3.12 when Timothy is writing one of his younger followers of the faith that he's been teaching and admonishing. And he he says, if anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will experience persecution. It's part of the Christian life. Are we expecting it? Secondly, are we experiencing it? Am I experiencing opposition and persecution in my life as a follower of Jesus? If we're not, at some level, we have to ask the question, am I living 
the life in Christ that he desires me to live if there is no persecution at some level, even if it be minimal 18-year-old guys in the corner laughing, what is it? Is it happening at some level? And then lastly, am I embracing opposition or persecution? Am I embracing it? Is it something that not only do I expect it and not only am I hoping to experiencing it, experience, maybe hoping is not the right word. We don't say, oh, God, bring persecution, but, but we know it's a part of the Christian life. And are we embracing it? Are we even with, a, with an attitude and a heart attitude, if you will, of joyfulness, rejoicing that we would be dishonored for the honor of Jesus, that we would be disgraced having received the grace of God? Let me just be transparent with you. I, I think this is a really hard message for us because I, I don't know that there could be anything further from reality for those of us in the places where we live, for many of us. I don't know that there could be anything further from reality for Johns Creek, Georgia. In, in a place where we by and large, have everything that we need or want. What does persecution look like for us here? Are we living in accordance with the world in such a way to where the watching world looks at us and says, you're weird? Or are we just blending in and there's nothing uniquely Jesus about us? I don't know what persecution looks like. I'm not gonna give you specifics, but I will say this. I do think that we need to be a people on our knees asking God to give us wisdom and to give us perspective. There's nothing sinful about having things. There's nothing sinful about being blessed with things. But what does persecution look like in that context? Let me speak briefly to what persecution is not, very quickly. Persecution, uh, just, just for the record, persecution is not deliberately provoking someone, whether you're speaking truth or not, but doing so in such a way that you are knowingly provoking someone to anger. And then, understandably, they respond with anger and insult. And then you say, oh, man, I'm getting, I'm getting persecuted because I follow Jesus. I was just speaking truth, man. I was just speaking truth. Like, no, you weren't speaking truth. You were being a jerk. <laughs> you see this a lot on social media. You see it in many various forms where God's people are provoking others rather than doing what the scriptures say. Listen to what Peter himself later wrote. He says, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, here it is, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, because you will be, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We are people carrying the light of Jesus everywhere we go in word and in deed. And as we do life 
in the darkness of the world, may his light shine through us in a way to where they are one winsomely into the hands of the Savior. But in so doing, there will be opposition. I am convinced, absolutely convinced, that God is doing a great work in his church. He has been doing it, and I'm convinced that he has stuff in store for us that, that truly is immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. I also am convinced that as he does his great work in and through this church in the years to come, we will be met with opposition and persecution. It's not a, it's not a if, it's a when. And so when it comes, will we be a people expecting it? Will we be a people that are ready to experience it and joyfully embrace it? Because we have been convinced that Jesus is better. I hope we will be, and I trust that we will be, as he leads us for his glory. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning, and thank you for your scriptures that teach us and admonish us, encourage us and convict us, and even rebuke us, Lord to shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, we pray and ask that you would continue your great work in and through Perimeter Church for your glory, O oh God, and that we would be a people like those early followers of Christ who are ready for whatever you may bring our way to build us up more into the image of Jesus, to build your church up knowing that you're doing a work that we can't always see and that our eyes are fixed on eternity, not the here and now. So Father, only you can do that through your spirit within us. So would you do it? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.